When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What technology allows you to do is it allows you to measure, which allows you to have a better idea of what's actually taking place, which allows you to get to the solution quicker. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Golf Unfiltered Podcast. This is the 109th episode of the podcast. I am your host, as always, Adam from GolfUnfiltered.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at GolfUnfiltered. You can send me an email, GolfUnfiltered at gmail.com. Today, I am very happy to welcome one of the most well-known golf instructors, especially in social media, but also outside as well, Mr. Joseph Mayo, otherwise known as the Trackman Maestro on Twitter. Joseph, how are you today? I'm great, man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to come on. And, you know, listeners (laughs) who listen to this show know that we talk a lot about the golf swing. We talk a lot about golf equipment. And quite frankly, Joe, I couldn't think of a better person than yourself to come on to talk a little bit about both. Uh, But before we get rocking and rolling into some of the questions that I have, as well as some of our listeners, why don't you give us a little bit of your background, how you got started with golf instruction and, and that type of thing? Well, I'll try to give the uh, sixty-second uh, Reader's Digest version. Um, <laughs> I didn't start playing golf. I didn't start playing golf until I was eighteen years old, after high school, and uh, um, a few months after I graduated high school, um, I suffered a horrific injury uh, where I lost the vision in my right eye. Ooh. And I had always played baseball and basketball and tennis and whatnot. And uh, um, after that eye injury, uh, the surgeons were like, you you can't be running around and jumping around right now. So I had to find something else to do. So my buddies introduced me to the game of golf. And uh, when I first started playing, I was completely enamored with the game. I loved it. Mm. Just fell in love with it. And... uh, I found myself, uh, instead of being in college classes, instead of being in chemistry class and calculus class and history class, I was at the golf course and uh, literally spent hour after hour at the golf course hitting balls and and picking the brain of of the assistant professionals there and and whatnot. Ended up dropping out of college Mm -hmm. after my sophomore year because I was like, well, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be in school. I want to be at the golf course. And, And I knew that I wanted my future to be in golf at some level. And and I knew that I would never be uh, a touring professional. That of course was absolutely out of the question when, when you don't start until you're 18 uh, and you start off playing with half of your vision gone, Mm -hmm. the chances of playing PJ tour level golf for a hundred million to one minimum. So I knew that would never happen. And and I've always been a thinker per se, you know, science and math and that kind of stuff has always been uh, my forte. So the search to find the answers to the golf swing, that it's been there since day one. And I remember uh, 
any golf book that I could get my hands on, I read it. I, I remember my first golf book that I ever bought was Jimmy Ballard's uh, How to Perfect Your Golf Swing. I think that was the, the name of the title. Mm-hmm. And I remember him talking about the, the common denominators of all players. And then I had David Ledbetter's book, Faults and Fixes. I had his book, The Golf Swing. Uh, and, and back in these days, you know, this is 1991, 1992. So obviously we had VHS tape. So right. any any uh, VCR tape I could get my hands on, I watched it. And uh, I started helping my friends and friends of friends and anybody that would listen to me. I would try my best to give them a golf lesson and understand I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was awful at it. You know, I knew how to grip it correctly, and I knew how to tell people to point their Vs to their shoulder, and I knew how to tell them to bend from the hips and point the club at the target. You know, I knew the basics. Um, but I, I was, you know, my, my knowledge base was very limited. And as I said, I would teach anybody that would listen. And as I said, I, I would find myself at the local golf course and, and trying to give instruction to my friends and friends of friends and, and anybody that wanted a golf lesson, I would give it to them. But I knew in my heart that my students weren't getting better. And I was asking questions of myself, of my own golf swing that I couldn't answer. Hmm. And all of the books that I read didn't answer my questions. All of the magazines that I read didn't answer my questions. And all of the VHS tapes I watched didn't answer my questions. And I called a few famous people. No reason to mention their names. Mm -hmm. They couldn't answer my questions, and the final straw was in 2000. It was either late 1999 or early 2000. I can't remember the exact date. I went out to Desert Mountain in Phoenix, mm-hmm. and I spent a full day with Mr. Jim Flick, and what a, what a kind, gracious man he was. I, I had a great day with him. But I was asking questions that, that Mr. Flick, just he, he just couldn't give me the information that I thought that I needed. And when the day was over... I, I was kind of distraught, and when I left, when I left Desert Mountain that day, I knew that that there were things in the golf swing that that I didn't understand. There were questions that I couldn't answer, and I just realized, or, or at that time, I believed this game is too hard; it's too difficult. Hmm. So I went back home to Palm Springs, where I was living, and I sold the balls, the bag, the putter, the driver, the shoes, the whole nine yards. I was done with golf. I I, I cursed the game. Really? Wow. I, I was finished with it. I had given golf nine years of my life, give or take, and I loved the game so much, but I was heartbroken because, as I said, I knew that the people I was helping, they weren't getting any better, and and on my best day, I was a three handicap, mm-hmm. and that was it. I was done with it, and to, to fast forward, my father, who lives in Tennessee, was diagnosed with cancer for the first time in 2008, so I moved back home to help him with his rehabilitation. And about a year later in 2009, we were at one of his doctor's appointments and I can't remember what I read. It was golf digest golf magazine or something. And I heard about a thing called TrackMan, hmm. And I went, wow, wait a second. And I thought, you mean, so there's actually a device out there that can help me measure that can help me actually understand what's going on. So I got this renewed vigor for golf. I moved back to Las Vegas, and I got a job in retail golf, selling golf clubs. Hmm. And I met a doctor who took a liking to me, and our friendship struck up. And, and he said, you know, Joe, I, I think that you should get one of these things. And I'm like, well, there's a problem. 
I make $250 a week and this machine costs $27,000. Right. That's a problem. And he said, well, I'll buy one. And he did. Wow. And that changed my life. Um, it allowed me to start measuring, to start knowing the truth about what was taking place. So that's the condensed version. I, I'm sorry that I rambled on there. No, but... that, that's a great story because, you know, I, I obviously people who, <laughs> who follow you on Twitter and you've got quite the following and you've got a very loyal following. I'm one of them. Um, and yeah, well, we, and we can tell that, you know, this is something that's very passionate to you and, and you are very detailed in, uh, you know, Joe, I think what, what's crazy and what I'm so impressed with when I follow your account is that you're so you're, you're able to express such, such intricate and, and complicated, but well explained details within 140 characters. I don't know how you do that, <laughs> but you do a really, <laughs> well, you do a good job at it. Well, well, thank you for saying that. That's very kind of you. And, and the one thing that I, that I want my followers to understand who are listening to this is, you know, when I popped up on the scene six, seven years ago, what, whatever, whenever, and, and, and kind of got a little bit of recognition, there are a lot of people who thought, well, who is this guy? Mm-hmm. Here's, a, here's a nobody who just popped up out from under a rock. He bought himself a track man and proclaimed him to, himself to be a golf instructor. Nothing could be further from the truth. As I said, uh, started playing golf in 1991 and, and, and literally – gave nine years of my life to the game, literally. And uh, so uh, I, 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 there's some people that don't know that. They don't know the story. And um, for that nine-year period of time, as I said before, if it was a book, a magazine article, uh, an instructional tape, I watched it, I read it, I tried it. So uh, I remember um, the first tournament I ever went to where I was teaching PJ Tour players the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic, and this was six years ago. Mm-hmm. And Frank Nobolo, who has uh, developed into one of my best friends, Frank Nobolo watched me teach all day long. And when the day was over, he came up to me, and, and we were talking back and forth. And he said, Joe, he said, where does all that passion and energy come from? And, and it took me one second to answer, and I said, failure. Interesting. As a, as a player and as a coach, I failed. I tried everything there was to try. I read everything there was to read, everything, and I failed. And that failure will either drive you crazy (laughs) (laughs) or or it will drive you to continue searching. And for a while, I think it did drive me crazy because it drove me out of the game. Mm. Uh, And I'll be honest with you. If I hadn't have read that article that day in that doctor's office back eight years ago, nine years ago, nine years ago, I guess now, eight years ago, whatever the date was, if I hadn't have read that article and found out about that measuring device, who knows where I would be right now? Who knows the, the turns that my life would have taken? But um, that's how it happened. It's crazy how life kind of unfolds that way, completely unexpected. You, you, you have a path to go down that you feel that you're going down at one point, and then all of a sudden something happens and you choose a completely different path. But in your case, you, you were brought back to the game that you love so much by reading that article and, you know, Joe, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier on is that you had these questions that people couldn't answer. And, and you, you reached out to some of the, the best teachers in the game, I would imagine, asking these questions. <laughs> what were those questions? And, and how, did, how did TrackMan uh, and the, the, uh, you understanding and, and recognizing that it could help you, how did it help you? Well, the questions that I was asking first and foremost were, uh, I, I think, I think the two biggest problems that I had 
when I started playing the game. Um, I did exactly what I was told to do. I didn't waver. I didn't deviate. And that's probably because I wasn't blessed with enough physical talent to deviate. And what I mean by that is this. I was told, you know, to, 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 to keep the club on plane, and I was told to, to, to lag it, release it. Those are the things I was, I was told to do, and, and I, or at least I thought I was doing them intently. And I did not deviate from the lesson plan, what the instructor was telling me to do. I didn't deviate from it, and I just struggled mm. awfully. Now, looking back, I understand exactly why I struggled. So the, I had the double whammy. I had the loss of vision in one eye, so now I'm dealing with a lack of depth perception. I don't have depth perception. So I'm dealing with that, and then, as I said, I did exactly what I was told to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were ball flight questions that, that, that I was asking that couldn't be answered. Like, for example, you know, it, you know, if I pull this thing down and I lag the club, lag the club, lag the club, how do I eventually get the club to, to square up on its own? Because I used to hit push cuts. Mm-hmm. I never, I never hooked the ball, and I didn't slice the ball. I hit push cuts, um, and I understand. I understood the fundamentals of you know, okay, if you swing over the top, you'll slice the ball. You know, that's what I was being told. You know, twenty five years ago, but I push cut the ball, and now looking back, I understand exactly precisely why I did it. And uh, as far as as far as TrackMan being concerned, in my opinion, and I stress my opinion. The be- the biggest thing that TrackMan has given to instruction, that has given to teachers, is the full explanation of the three-dimensional club path. And I stress three-dimensional club path. Mm. And that, and as far as I know, and I could be wrong, before the, in, before the invention of TrackMan, before it came on the scene, no one had fully or accurately described the three-dimensional club path. And how it is a combination, basically, of where you're aimed through impact in combination with the angle of attack. And in my opinion, the the uh, the seriousness or the importance of understanding angle of attack has really come to light mm-hmm. since the, the the advent of TrackMan. You know, angle of attack it sets the stage for ball flight. It's it, it's it's the opening act. It sets the stage and. With angle of attack, you have to know how to use it to your advantage or you have to understand how to deal with it, how to account for it. And before TrackMan, I think that was clearly, clearly misunderstood. Well, I think that's an extremely important piece of information you just said because it, with, with angle of attack and, you know, I've, I've had golf lessons. I've worked on a TrackMan, TrackMan before and I understand, the you know, the terms that you're using, as I'm sure many of your mm-hmm. listeners to this do too. But, you know, an example of what you're saying is the fact that we all know now, it's second nature now, years after the advent of TrackMan, that you hit up with the driver in many instances. You know, some mm-hmm. players may be hitting down, but uh, most of the time to get the best performance out of that club, you need to hit up. And so mm-hmm. to your point, I don't think people understood that prior to TrackMan. 100% agree because, first of all, you couldn't measure it. So how can you understand something that you can't measure? Mm-hmm. Um, so you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree more. So now, now we can measure it, and when you measure it, you can then quantify it, and then you can understand it. Um, and like I tell, uh, like I tell good players all the time, I had a young kid in to see me today, 
who suffers from a little push cut with the driver. You put him on track, man, and you understand that he's hitting up on the driver, and you're like, well, wait a second. When you hit up, all things being equal, when you hit up, that means the golf club has already moved past low point, mm-hmm. and it's now beginning to work up, which means it's beginning to work to the left, to the left of your aim line. Right. And when the when the club starts moving up into the left, the path is working to the left. So if the face is square to the to the center of the fairway or pointed slightly to the right, which is where it should be for a draw, of course, mm-hmm. the ball will push cut because the face Unless is open. You, it's open to that path now, which was which was created by the angle of attack. Exactly. Right. So here here's here's my point exactly. I, I think I, uh, I I was talking to David Ledbetter on his show a few weeks ago. And I said, imagine that you've got a really good player. You've got a tour caliber player in front of you. And you're looking at him with your naked eye, and you're like, wow, he, he, he aligns himself pretty square. And the club looks, quote, unquote, on plane. He's got these nice lines. Everything looks great. You know, you film him with your high-speed camera. And it, it passes muster. It passes the eye test. But the problem is, is the ball's starting pretty straight, and then it keeps leaking out to the right a little bit. And he's like, you know, I don't want the ball to do that. I want it to draw. Well, if you don't have a measuring device, then you can't really know exactly what's going on. But, but then here's the thing. You throw him on track, man, and the face is pretty much zeroed out, which means it's pretty square down the target, mm-hmm. right down the fairway. His angle of attack is, say, three degrees up. So now you've got a scenario that because he's hitting up, because he's aimed theoretically square – that path is now negative three-ish. So now you get a scenario where the face is dead square down the center of the fairway, but because of the angle of attack, the ball starts pretty straight and it cuts. And it has everything to do with biomechanics, just the way that the human body works. Bingo. And if you don't know that, then you may go down a different road of trying to solve this golfer's problems, and you may do some damage in the long term. And this is the way that I like to term it. <clears throat> Technology, whether it's, hey, high-speed cameras, track man, swing catalyst, sound putt lab, gears, we've all, you know, we've heard it all. In my opinion, what technology allows you to do is it allows you to measure, which allows you to have a better idea of what's actually taking place, which allows you to get to the solution quicker and less painfully. Because if you don't have this stuff, you can not measure. And there's things that you cannot possibly know with the naked eye. And if you don't know it and you can't measure it, how can you solve it? Listeners, you know why I like this guy. Everything he's saying right now, you know that we talk about this kind of stuff on, on Golf Unfiltered very often. And Joseph, I mean, you're you're – hitting everything that we talk about on this show and so you've got a lot of supporters with that i mean but you're absolutely right because if you can't measure where you are in your current state how do you know that you you've even made an improvement and not just a change later on bingo you know couldn't agree more one of the things joseph that you uh mentioned earlier was um you know for the regular golfer and and you had you had detailed a uh, scenario where you were doing what you were told to do 
you were focusing on lag. You were focusing on, you mm-hmm. know, wrist cock and all these different things that I'm sure many golfers, I, I mean, hell, I've, I've been taught these things throughout my 20-something mm-hmm. years of playing the game. And I go out to the range and I try to focus on these things that I've been taught, just as many of the listeners to this show probably do every single day. But not all of us have access to TrackMan. Not all of us have access to the intelligence and the experience that you have. What would you say is the biggest challenge for the regular golfer when they walk in to see you, for example, on the first lesson? What is one of the things that they have a misconception about regarding technology and how it's going to help their golf swing? The biggest misconception that people have uh, about me personally uh, they feel like that all I do is plop down a track man and start reading numbers mm. and, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, as a matter of fact, I have some professional players who have never seen my track man. <laughs> <They'll> <laughs> oh, tell you, really? I don't know if he even owns one or not. Of course, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to mention his name, but I have a PJ tour player that's staying with me in my house right now. We just got off the golf course a couple of hours ago and uh, I don't think he's ever seen my track man. I don't think he knows if I have one or not. <laughs> so that, that would, that would be a misconception of course. Um, and, 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 um, yeah, that, that's probably the, the biggest misconception and probably number two or one sub B that's one sub a one sub B would be that I'm so technical that I use all these big fancy words like flexion, extension, rotations that, I'm so technical that you can't understand it. Hmm. And, and once again, no, nothing could be further from the truth because the videos that I put on the Internet, I'm trying to reach the broadest audience that I possibly can. When I've got a student in front of me, I'm trying to reach him. And if I have to say it in a way that a sixth grader can understand it, then that's how I will say it. Hmm. I will keep throwing darts until I hit the bullseye. And, you know, let's say I'm teaching a physician, a doctor who understands flexion extension and radial deviation and ulnar deviation. I may say, doctor, show me a little ulnar deviation there because he (laughs) understands it. It's just, there you go, understands it. But I would not say, hey, show me some ulnar deviation to just a random insurance salesman because he would look at me like I've lost my mind. So, I think those are the two biggest misconceptions that I that I just set out down a track man and read numbers, or I'm so technical and I use these big fancy words that people leave my lesson teeth saying, "What in the world did he just say to me?" Is there a, a? I imagine the answer to this is yes, but is there a art to what you do insofar as making sure the student doesn't become too mechanical and still have that feel for the game? while you're working with him or her uh, with a TrackMan? 100%. And you know something, and and there are several TrackMan owners out there that I know that if they listen to this podcast, they're going to say, heck yes. I believe that TrackMan makes us less technical. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. You plop a TrackMan down behind a good player, and now he knows exactly what a 65-yard wedge shot feels like. He knows what a 95-yard wedge feels like so he can stand there and work on feels work on technique because the device just gave him an accurate measurement as to what he felt what it produced if i make this feeling if i feel this this is what happens Mm -hmm. you see what i'm saying i do yeah 
So That's interesting, I, yeah. I, I absolutely I believe that I believe that technology can actually make things less technical. And here's the thing: I want to make this perfectly clear. TrackMan, other pieces of technology, but specifically TrackMan has been blamed for ruining players. It's been blamed for things that is it responsible for? Absolutely not. Like I tell people, when you get on the bathroom scale in the morning and you look down and it tells you you're a fat ass, don't blame the scale. (laughs) It just told you what you are. It told you the state of where you are. When you get on a track, man, and it spits those numbers out, it just told you what what you did. Mm. When the instructor and the player or both start tinkering with things and the player gets into trouble, don't blame the track, man. It didn't do anything. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a measuring device. It's up to you to take the information and how you choose to move forward with it. That's on you. That's on the coach. That's on the player, not the machine. Do you ever find that some of your students are shocked or maybe even embarrassed by what that track man is telling them they're doing? You better know it. Hmm. You better know it. And one of my good friends, I, I won't mention his name, but he says... Track man holds me accountable. Mm. It holds the teacher accountable. Because when you plop that bad boy down and this player starts hitting shots, it gives you numbers. And then you get in there like a, like a doctor or a surgeon and you start tinkering with things, those numbers better improve. Ball flight better improve. So the track man holds the instructor accountable because it 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 it's it measures the impact of your voice to the student. Hmm. If you tell the student to do ABC, then that machine is going to measure what the student does on the very next swing. So it holds the instructor accountable. And I can tell you right now. I have taught in front of 50, 100, 200 people. I've taught live in front of 200 people, at least for 200 people, with a track man running. And I think for a lot of instructors, that would be extremely uh, – that would be a lot of pressure. Yeah. That, As the saying goes, that would be a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy that. I do. I, I enjoy it. It's something that I enjoy doing because, as I said – I know what those numbers mean, and I know how to change them, but change them in a way where long-term improvement is possible. Uh, I had to learn the hard way, and I'm the first to admit it. Um, When I first got out on the PJ Tour, as I said, it's been, what is it, 2015? So this has been now six years ago, give or take. And I would have a PJ Tour player in front of me that's hitting down on his driver three or four or five degrees. And they've got so much ball speed, they can hit down on it five degrees and still and still play the golf course effectively. Mm-hmm. The, average, the average athlete can't do that. But anyway, I learned real quickly that good players can fudge those numbers. As a matter of fact, you can tell a tour player that hits down on his driver five degrees, say, just start hitting up a little more. Start leveling out and hitting up a little more. Well, this is what will happen. He's good enough to change the numbers on the practice tee. But what you have to understand is this. There's something going on in his motor pattern that creates the five degrees down. Hmm. 
And if you don't actually change that issue, if you don't nip that in the bud, when he gets on the golf course, he's not going to start hitting up on it. He's going to go right back to hitting five degrees down. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So they can fudge the numbers on the range. They can make they can make trackman numbers look great when there's no pressure. You know, I've seen players who I knew for a fact are hitting five or six degrees down. You get them on the practice tee, they can hit up two degrees all night long, and it looks beautiful. Hmm. But when they get in the heat of the battle on Sunday afternoon, that angle of attack is going to start going back down to where they are comfortable with it. What's what's instinctively comfortable to them, hmm. and and I had to learn that the hard way. <laughs> I imagine, yeah, I imagine that that many people have to learn that the hard way. I mean, that's just fascinating, sure. and and it's nice to hear that even the uh, the greatest in the game, uh, the greats in the game, I should say, uh, struggle from carrying it over from the range to the course. Hundred percent, and and I've made this statement before on Twitter, and and I stand by it. I'd love to measure a player on the range on Wednesday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon when there's no pressure. Measure him on the range. And then measure him on the 72nd hole of the U.S. Open, needing par to win the tournament. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see the difference. Probably I really- think for some players, it might not be that big of a deal, but I think for other players, it would be an astronomical difference. Yeah, I would imagine they would revert back to that that motor mechanism that and that you know that pathway that they've already just you know grooved in over the years of swinging a golf club. You better know it. Absolutely, 100% agree. You know, Joe, this is just extremely fascinating stuff. And, and obviously, you know, listeners, you can follow Joe on Twitter at Trackman Maestro. And, and Joe, you've you've established quite the following on Twitter. You've got nearly 18,000 followers by this uh, by this recording. Uh, but I do know that at sometimes you, you do have some uh, dissenters that that comment sure. to you, uh, as anyone does who is on social media. But, uh, sure. you know, You've always handled yourself in a way that I think is respectable, and I think that you've always welcomed that, those uh, difference of opinions. Um, is that something that you you know consciously decided to do early on, or do you still hear those types of you know disagreements even off of social media when you're teaching uh, some of your students? That's a great question. And, and first and foremost, I'm I, I, I'm the first to admit that when I first started my little crusade. <laughs> My little social media campaign, I did things the wrong way. I said some things that I shouldn't have said, and I made comments about some famous instructors' information that I should never have made. Mm. And I, I admit that. I did things the wrong way, and I rubbed some people the wrong way early on, and, and, and I threw some punches early on that if I could go back in time, I would take that back. And the honest, truthful answer is I went from nobody knowing my name and literally overnight I was on the range teaching some of the best players in the world. And, and, and for that, and, I, and I've, I've, I've lectured on this many times to many people, uh, Grant Waite, uh, well-known PGA Tour player, um, I owe Grant a debt of gratitude that I'll never be able to repay because there's a teacher out in Southern California by the name of Dana Dahlquist. And Dana's a great teacher, well-known, especially on social media. Mm -hmm. And Dana knew me early on because of my track man. 
and, and Dana liked that stuff, and this was many years ago, and he knew Grant, so he knew us both, but Grant and I didn't know each other. And Grant had a golf school here in Las Vegas, and Dana said, hey, Grant, there's a guy out in Las Vegas named uh, Joseph Mayo. He's a good friend of mine, and he's really good on track, man. And Grant was like, wow, hey, I'd like to have him come over to the golf school. So I did. I shook Grant's hand that morning and did the ball flight lecture and brought my track man, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. And a few days later, he calls me, and we struck up a friendship. And about a year later, we're in business together. And he plucks me out of the air and puts me on tour, brings me out there, and he tells players, you need to listen to Joe. You need to listen to what he's saying to you. So um, that was my break. That was my lucky start, and I am the first to admit that I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And, and, and I owe Grant, as I said, I owe him a debt that I'll never be able to repay because his, his, his helping hand changed my life. Mm. And getting back to the original point, um, because of the things that I said early on and some shots that I took at people, I ruffled some feathers. I burnt some bridges. And I wish I could go back and take that back. I do. But, but I can't. I made mistakes, and, and I have owned up to those mistakes, and I've admitted those mistakes. And there are some people online who still remind me of those mistakes, and they probably always will, and that's okay. You know, I, I made my bed. You have to lay in it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I don't have nearly the the trolls or the dissenters that I used to have. And I made a conscious decision um, not too long ago that I, I will not ever do that again. I will never publicly say anything harmful about another instructor's information. I'll never do that again. I'll, I, two, three, four, five, six years ago, I would say, well, you're wrong. That's not right. Hmm. I, learned, I learned the hard way. You do not get people to agree that you're right by telling them they're wrong. Mm, that's true. That's it doesn't work that way. No. It just doesn't. Now, it might for some people, but it doesn't work for the masses because if you point your finger at people, the masses, and you tell them how wrong they are, they're not – trust me, they're not going to come over to your side. No. They're just not. And, 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 and you know something? You know something, Adam? Here's the truth. Literally overnight, I went from a nobody that you had ever heard of to being on the range with the best in the world – and I didn't know that that was going to happen. Of course, I had no idea this was going to happen. So some things that I had said early on came back to bite me in the ass because of that. Mm. You know, I, I'm just hanging out with my buddies, making videos, putting them on YouTube, and I'm saying some things I probably shouldn't have said. And then next thing you know, bam, I'm in the public eye, and I'm like, oh, shit. Right, right. <laughs> I wish I could go back and eat my words. <laughs> uh, well, that's the, you know, that that's what happens when you know your stuff. I mean, and I'm sure the listeners on this can tell by what you're saying that you're a confident guy and, you know, you you obviously are an extremely intelligent instructor. And I think with with thank you. To your point, you know, when you've got uh, you know, that type of background, you've got that type of, you know, opinions or those types of opinions and you and you go up against the masses as you put it. I mean, you're definitely yeah. going to have some pushback, and that's just common human nature. 
Yes, you are. Because remember something, you know, when, when I came on the scene with my social media deal and TrackMan, you know, this was back when TrackMan was in its infancy. And uh, I, I remember uh, full well. Oh, my gosh. I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the times now. I'm, I'm thinking through history here, the years. I remember some of my original videos that I put on the Internet, um, the ball flight laws that I did. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 2010. Mm where I'm telling you that the face is the, is responsible mostly for the start line. The path is not responsible. You have to understand, there's still people that teach the path is the start line. To this day, they still teach it. Hmm. And so you can imagine seven years ago how many instructors were teaching path is the start line. So, I mean, I got a lot of resistance just on basic physics of ball flight. Right. And I think that so, anyone would wa- who watches any of those slow motion funny videos now on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you can tell that path does not start that ball where that person wants it to go. It's definitely the face. 100% agree. And, and, you know, I remember, I remember the video I did where I said that divots are virtually worthless. I mean, there's people that want to shoot me and bury me in a hole for saying that. Of course divots matter. I'm like, well, no, they don't. Look at Tom Watson. Because the divot. Jack Nicholas, Greg Norman. And, and the thing about it is, is, the divot does not tell you where the ball started. That's A. It doesn't tell you how the ball curved. That's B. It doesn't tell you angle of attack. That's C. It doesn't tell you trajectory. That's D. And if you think you're going to fit lie angles accurately by looking at a piece of dirt, a chunk of dirt torn out of, of the earth, if you're going to fit lie angles accurately on that, <laughs> that's E. So if it doesn't tell you A, B, C, D, or E, then what does it tell you? That's a good <laughs> that's point. That's why I say yeah virtually worthless, virtually. And somebody will say, well, Joe, the divot tells you that you hit the ground. I'm like, well, my gosh. <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. But tangible ball flight information? No, it doesn't. And and then I did a video just a few days ago uh, that talks about a subject that I that I talked about on, on social media years ago, and I said great players don't hit down. They don't. Hmm. The club is oftentimes moving down. The club head is oftentimes moving down, but the golfer's not. Mm-mm. And then you know my my uh, my assault on swing plane. Oh, good grief! Oh, yeah. Well. I mean, because <laughs> you know I, I can give you I can give you twenty seven reasons why why swing plane is bad news. But here's the problem, as you alluded to. When people have been believing in something for oftentimes decades and may have been teaching something maybe for decades. And then a guy comes along like me and makes a video and says, I'm sorry, that's just not reality. It's not real. It's not happening. It's not it's not truthful. They don't take kindly to that. No, I I imagine they would not. That's that's like telling people that the grass is not green, the sky is not blue. They just they they just don't want to hear that sometimes. And and I had to realize the hard way that, as I said, telling people they're wrong does not make them agree that you're right. And I learned that the hard way. <laughs> oh, Joe, uh, yeah, believe me, I I can. You and I are on the same page there. Uh, but anyway, you know, Joe, uh, I'm sure you and I can talk about this for hours. I can tell already. Sure. But you know, we do have some Twitter questions that came in. Do you have some time to uh, answer a couple of them? Fire away. All right. So, uh, folks, thank you again for sending in your Twitter questions. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at Golf Unfiltered. You can follow Joe at Trackman Maestro. Uh, Joe, this one comes in from a friend of the podcast, Troy. He asks, how does an instructor like yourself 
start working with tour pros? And you kind of answered this a little bit with your story about Grant Waite, but uh, is it through networking, mutual connections? How does that work? Okay, first and foremost, if you have the desire to teach tour players, you better be in a region where there's tour players, i.e., you better be in Phoenix, you better be in Vegas, you better be in Orlando. If you're the director of golf at a country club in the middle of Wyoming, odds are you're not going to teach a tour player. you got to go to where they are. That's first and foremost. And once you do that, I'll be completely candid. Oftentimes, teaching tour players is luck. Mm. It's luck. Being in the right place at the right time or having an association or relationship with someone. And for you instructors out there that are listening to this, there are some great great, talented, and young instructors out there that will never teach a tour player. And I hate that. I do. And the, the truth of the matter is you cannot judge your worth as an instructor. You cannot judge yourself harshly if you don't teach tour players. I know it's easy for me to say that, but that's the truthful answer. And if you want to teach tour players, you got to go to where they are. And that's that's the fact of the matter. And to get I, I, I guess to get down to the nuts and bolts of the answer, you either got to get lucky or you got to have an association with somebody. Mm. I got lucky and I have an association with Grant. And, you know, everybody on tour loves Grant. He's got such a fantastic golf swing. Grant is a high character guy. He's an honest, high character guy. So when Grant looked at this player and said, hey, take my word for it, you need to listen to Joe. His word carried a lot of weight. So that's how I got started. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a great way to, to get into it. Uh, another question <laughs> comes in here from, uh, from Michael. He asks, what are your thoughts on a Kucher-style flat backswing for a shorter golfer? Now, I'm not a short golfer, uh, Joe, but I also have a flat backswing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, my gosh. Well, here's what I would say to that. I would say that Mr. Hogan had a pretty, quote-unquote, flat backswing. And how tall was Mr. Hogan? I, honestly, I think he was – was he 5'8"? I, th- I think he might have been shorter. I think, you know, 5'7". He might have been 5'7". Yeah. 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 Uh, here, here's what I would say. Uh, the cosmetics of the backswing being flat or, or upright, the cosmetics really – I could care less about that. I think that what we can all agree upon is all things being equal, and that's the key phrase, all things being equal, higher hands, bigger arc helps us potentially hit it further. And I think you'll agree that if you look at the players on the PJ Tour who have hit the ball really high and really far, the, the dominators, the Jack Nicholases, the Tom Watsons, the Roy McElroys, uh, the Dustin Johnsons, they don't have low arms. They don't have the quote-unquote flat arms. They, they don't. Um, as a matter of fact, and I was having this discussion with somebody a few months ago. I can't remember who it was, and we were talking, can you name a tour player that hit it really far with a short, low backswing? And I think the only answer was Dan Pohl. And most of you younger uh, listeners are not going to have any idea who Dan Pohl is, but you, you older listeners, you'll remember Dan Pohl because he could hit it 280 back in back when 280 was a mile, <laughs> and he had a he had a short, you know, shorter backswing, lower arms. But you know, in my opinion, higher arms allows you to hit it further. Um, but one last thing I will say is, 
if you stick those arms up there, you have to account for it. And that's another discussion for another time. I'm actually going to do a video on that next week. Nice. But to answer, there you go. But to answer his question, low, flat arms, uh, you know, it can work. Mm -hmm. It can work. If you're distanced, challenged, I wouldn't advise it. I'll say that much. Fair enough. And I'm actually taking notes for myself as well. So <laughs> uh, I got one final uh, question here for you, Joe. Uh, this is from sure. uh, Dimplehead Golf. Uh, he would like to All know right. your thoughts on the easiest way to get the club in the slot and the downswing if it's a little above the plane at the top. A little bit of a technical question for you, but sure. uh, what are your thoughts on that one? Okay. Well, here's the thing. Um, and I would say, quote unquote, above the plane, that's got me thinking Jim Furyk. That's got me thinking Jack Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Mr. Nicholas had really high arms. Well, here's the thing. And it kind of revolves around what I just said 30 seconds ago. If you're going to stick those arms up there like that, then you've got to account for it. And he said, what's the best way? I don't know if there is a best way. Because let's talk about how Jack Nicholas did it, who, in my opinion, is the greatest golfer of all time. And Jack had those nice high arms, big, full turn. How did Jack get his arms down? Well, here's what he did. First of all, you remember he had that little knee slide. You know, he kind of slid his knees a little bit. He definitely had early extension. He definitely did. He had a little bit of a tilt back. And there are times where you can see photographs of Jack where he had a reverse C finish. Mm-hmm. So all of those components, he he put those in there because what he was trying to do was he was trying to buy time. He was trying to buy time to get that golf club back down to where he could hit this thing. Because if Jack Nicholas, with his really high arms, if he would have started turning and opening up like, say, Sergio Garcia, right from the top, we would have never known his name. He wouldn't be Jack Nicholas. He'd be Jack Smith. <laughs> so <laughs> he stuck those arms way up there, but he slid the knees, early extended, tilted back. That's how he did it. Mm-hmm. Jim Furyk does not do ex- – he, he has a little bit of that going on. You know, Jim's got the, that little funny knee action. But Jim Furyk brings it down another way. And this is, this is a technical way of saying it, and I apologize. But if you look at Furyk, nice high arms. And then what he does is he massively rotates his right arm, his right shoulder massively. Mm -hmm. And if you follow me on, on social media, you'll hear me talking about external rotation. And for you guys out there, go to Google and type in external rotation of the shoulder and you'll see what I'm talking about. So Jim Furyk, he goes into this massive external rotation to get this thing down. Whereas Jack Nicholas did not, he had the slide, the early extension, the tilt back. So, I can't really give you a best way to do it, but those are ways that the best of all time have done it. And I feel that those are great examples uh, to, to follow if, if you ever wanted to find a way to get from the top. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, that is Mr. Joseph Mayo. You know him as the Trackman Maestro on Twitter. Joseph, this was a fascinating conversation. Uh, where can we find you? Where can our listeners uh, look at more of your work? Well, as you said, I am a Trackman Maestro on Twitter and uh, Instagram. My website, which is about three years long overdue, will be up very soon. Uh, And I am the Director of Instruction at TPC Summerlin. 
in Las Vegas, Nevada. That's how you can find me. Awesome. And I know that you're also doing some uh, some traveling clinics every so often. I know you're coming to my neck of the woods pretty soon. Uh, and so I've definitely uh, – uh, maybe I'll, I'll look you up when you come down this way. But, folks, uh, again, that was Mr. Joseph Mayo. And, Joe, I hope we can do this again in the future. It'll be my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Adam. <laughs>